Well, this is a very special season in the life of Christ Fellowship Church and a very exciting time for all of us as we put in place formal membership in the church according to our new constitution and all for very good reasons, all for, all for rejoicing. Uh, so it seemed timely to me to consider two things in a two-sermon short series. First, one on church membership today, uh, that church membership is meaningful, and the second next Sunday, uh, that the ordinances of the church are also meaningful. Uh, before we launch our fall sermon series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, two, three Sundays from now. Uh, so I am operating under the basic assumption that you are convinced, or at least mostly convinced, or amiable to the idea that the New Testament church is indeed biblical. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin with that premise in mind, and that membership in it is biblical. Uh, so I want to focus this morning on why it's meaningful. Why membership in the local church is meaningful. That seems to me to be a helpful focus for where we are at this morning as a church. And so if you'd like to follow along, uh, on uh, the back of your worship bulletin is the outline of the sermon. It has this sermon theme, the church is the people of God for whom Christ died. Committed membership to the local church is the means to blessing and serving God for his glory on the earth. I want to begin with the idea that uh, the local church is really God's idea. Anywhere we look in Scripture, we find that God has called not a series of separate individuals to himself, but, but a whole community, a whole community of people to himself. In Genesis, God created Adam, but that was not good for Adam to be alone, so God created Eve. And he didn't stop there. Adam and Eve bore children, and their children had families, and so on, and so on, and so on. God has always had in mind for himself a community of worshipers. That was God's idea from the start. In Genesis chapter 1, God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with his glory. An obedient Adam and Eve would have procreated and filled the earth with generation after generation of worshipers of God. Until one day, as it says in Numbers chapter 14, Isaiah 6 and 11, Habakkuk 2, Psalm 72, the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of God, even as the waters cover the sea. That's God's idea. After Adam sinned and brought about the fall of mankind into sin, childbirth no longer brought a holy worshiper of God into the world, but a sinner. So now, for the whole earth to be covered by people who worship the glory of God, would require sinners to be born again into the family of God through the saving work of Jesus Christ. So now God calls individual sinners out from among the whole of sinful mankind. He calls them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. He calls them out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. Jesus is the stronger man who is plundering Satan's kingdom and he is gathering his people out of the devil's domain, placing them in his domain, his kingdom, his church. In this sense, the church is all Christians everywhere. And that's found in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul uses mar the marriage relationship between husband and wife to explain the relationship between 
Christ and his church. But the word used in that universal sense, the word church used in that universal sense, really only happens a handful of times in the New Testament. Almost every time the word church appears in the New Testament, it is referring to a particular local gathering of Christians. That word, that Greek word, is ekklesia. It comes from two words. Kaleo, meaning called, and ek, meaning out. The word literally means called out. God is calling out a people to himself. And very quickly, this word, ekklesia, uh, began to be used to identify the assembly of God's people, the church, a local church. And this local church is distinct, and it's identifiable. Look at how the church is identified and described at the end of Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Let me just read this passage. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So church members can be identified, first of all, by what they're devoted to. What are they devoted to? They were devoted to the Word of God, taught to them by the apostles. They were devoted to their fellowship with one another. They were devoted to the Lord's Supper, which is the breaking of bread. And they were devoted to prayer. Church members can be identified by their commitments. What commitments were they active in? They served one another, meeting each other's basic Physical needs as needs arise. They gathered for worship together, and they ate meals together. And church members can be identified by their character. What character did these early disciples display? Well, they maintained an attitude of awe towards God and His mighty works. They maintained an attitude of awe whenever someone came to saving faith, when a sinner was called out of sinful mankind and placed in the church, they maintained a sense of awe of God's Holy Spirit working in and among them and through them. They were glad-hearted and they were generous-hearted, praising God from their hearts. And they made friends. They made friends. People looked upon them favorably. And what was the result? The result was more members. As these church members proclaimed the gospel of the Lord, was calling out sinners and saving them into the church in Jerusalem. God's idea of church membership is identifiable and it's distinct. There are those inside the church and there are those outside the church. People can be added to the church and people can be removed from the church in order to remain its distinct, to maintain its distinctiveness. That members are indeed true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we can see in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the numbers to be added to are those from whom the Lord is saved. That's who's a member in the church. Those who now put away sin and pursue righteousness of Christ. 
So what happens when the church admits someone to the membership who goes on sinning? Well, Jesus gives instructions in Matthew chapter 18. Flip back to Matthew chapter 18 just a little bit and find verse 15. Jesus clearly has a concept of his own church in the Gospels. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Kind of thing happens all the time. Kind of thing happens without anybody knowing it. Except the person who sinned and the person who they sinned against. Someone says they're sorry. They, they, they repent. They confess their sin. They admit it. They own it. And they receive forgiveness. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's nothing magical about the number two or the number three. It's just the it's just the, in that day and age, two or three people formed a credible witness. So that if he said, you say, you sinned against me when you, when you called me a liar and I didn't lie, and he says, no, I didn't. Uh, well, then this guy says, no, I heard him say that, and I know that he didn't do that. Okay, you've got two witnesses. And, and hopefully that will lead him to repentance, right? Yeah. Hopefully that happens and happens quickly. In verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the ecclesia. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. When we're confronted by our sin, however that comes about, repent and ask forgiveness from the person who sinned against you, and you'll have it. But if someone is entrenched, deeply entrenched in blatant sin, openly unrepentant of that sin, Jesus instructs the church to remove him from the membership. As does the Apostle Paul in the case of the man caught in unrepentant sexual sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Why? For gospel integrity and for gospel witness. For gospel integrity and for gospel witness. The church says we take it upon ourselves to separate them out so as not to confuse the gospel. In whose mind? In everyone's mind. In everyone's mind. The unrepentant sinner cannot go on thinking that he is a saved member of Christ's church. It's hoped that he will then repent and be restored. And the repentant sinners in the church cannot be allowed to think that They can join him in unrepentant sin and remain in the saving relationship with God. They can't think that. You see how that sin in the camp would corrode the camp. Can't allow that to happen. Gospel integrity, but also gospel witness. Also, the church cannot compromise its gospel witness to the lost, those out there, by blatantly sanctioning sin, blatantly incorporating hypocrisy. The world already sees our normal, regular, daily sins and our normal, regular, daily hypocrisy in dealing with our own sin. But we admit it. We admit we're but poor and wretched sinners. But we know a Savior who has come and who has rescued us and is transforming us by the truth of His Word and by the power of His Holy Spirit. And He has called us out of the world to walk in this righteousness. 
Members of the local church are to be identified as distinctly gospel people. Just being the official member of a church on a piece of paper is not meaningful. Oh, I can show you my certificate. That's not very meaningful. Local church membership is meaningful only in Christ. In faith in the gospel. So, local church membership is meaningful because being called out, being made God's people, is God's idea. We're following his idea. Membership of the local church also has a divine purpose. First, it's to reflect the glory and the character of God. We talked a little bit about that. God's divine purpose for the church is to reflect the glory of God. Each of us individually and all of us collectively are to reflect the character of God. Jesus plainly tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we have to do better than we did when we were just a bunch of sinning Gentiles. You've got to do better than that. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father's perfect. How can we possibly reflect God's perfect character in this life and in this world? How can we do that? Well, first of all, only by doing it together. By doing it together. Remember, it was God's intention from the very beginning to display his character through people interacting with one another. That's how he displays his character. He created Adam and Eve for this purpose. He called out Abraham and his family out of Ur for this purpose. He called the nation of Israel out of Egypt for this purpose. And he called the New Testament church for this purpose. No single individual can display the fruit of the Spirit without interacting with other peoples. You can't display moral character just standing there by yourself. So God has placed his Holy Spirit within his church so that we would bear fruit. It's by living out lives in community, together with one another, with other people around us, that we can exercise love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We've got to have others around us in order to display those things, and others have to have us around them in order to display those things. The church is like a petri dish in which relational qualities grow. No others, no relations, no, no showing the glory of God, no reflecting the glory of God. But because we are together and because we are patient, for example, to be patient with one another, you have the opportunity to exercise patience with me. And if I'm that person who seems to always be generating opportunities for you to exercise patience with, then blessed are you because you get to grow in patience and display more patience and glory to God. And if one day you don't want to be patient with me, then your lack of patience will be exposed and you get to repent. And ask God for more patience. Because he has surely been patient with you. And so this is how we reflect the character of God. It takes a church. The fruit of spirit of the Spirit is really the moral profile of Jesus, isn't it? That's what we're reading in Galatians chapter 5. As we grow in him, we display his character. It is the church 
that God is gifted with his word and with his spirit to display his character and his glory to the world. Real believers in a real local church that outsiders can point to and say, they're different. They're different. And the first thing that they should notice about us being different is that that we gather together every Lord's Day to worship our glorious God. The benefits of which are life-giving. We'll talk about the benefits more in just a moment. What is astounding to me is, having read the New Testament, it's to realize that Jesus expected his church to be a lasting impression here on earth after he left. Think about that for a moment. Jesus intended, Jesus had the expectation that when he ascended back to the Father, his church would remain a lasting impression of himself here on earth. Not only are we to reflect Jesus' character in our fruit of the Spirit living, not only are we to worship God and praise the glory of God in our worship of our Heavenly Father, but we, the members of the local church, are to continue Jesus' gospel ministry. He left us a ministry. He put us in the hands of the apostles and they they handed it down to us. The church seeks to save the lost today by proclaiming the gospel to everyone within reach. That's what we do. Listen, turn with me if you want to see these words. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Beginning in verse 16, here's Jesus leaving. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, to which Jesus had directed them. So they're They're following Jesus, they're following, they're believing the word of God and doing what it says. And then, verse 17, they saw him and they worshipped him. Okay, so they're they're, they're trying to walk obediently and display his righteousness. They're they're worshipping him because of his glorious resurrection, although some doubted. And then in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our purpose in the local church is to proclaim the message that brings glory to God through the salvation of sinners who will then praise his glory. Listen to the same message or the same commission, if you will, uh, in Acts chapter 1. Find Acts chapter 1. In verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Do you see the progression? It starts here, and it spreads. And it grows and it covers to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, church, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply by the gospel so that my glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the commission. 
God's same idea. You see, we, after hearing that, we shouldn't need any cheerleading to get us to move. We shouldn't need anybody to come along and go, come on, yeah, 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 let's do it now. Simply hearing and understanding the plan and purpose of God for us should move us to be active witnesses to Christ. We're playing a part in our worship and in our witness to covering the earth with the glory of God. His initial plan now through the glory of sinners being saved through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Local church membership is meaningful because it's the plan of God for his people. His plan for his glory to cover the earth. You don't have any more meaningful purpose in your life than that. Membership of the local church, the people in it receive needed benefits. Hey, that sounds good. Now my ears are perking up. What are, what are these benefits? Uh, there are a couple of ways that I'd like to describe these benefits. Uh, those benefits that come from covenant membership and those, those benefits specifically of being together. I started in this section, I really I, I thought, gosh, I mean, just start listing the benefits of being part of the family of God. Just start, just start thinking about all the encouragement and all the things that you receive from being the member of a local church, all the opportunities that you get to serve and to witness and to work and to worship and to sing glorious praises. I just I, I, I filled up notepads and I had to stop. There's no way that this can fit into the sermon. I needed, I ran out of time. I just needed a different approach. So let me do this. Let me highlight just a few things from our church covenant, from the covenant promise that, that we will make together to one another as members of Christ Fellowship Church. The first one's this, that we will exercise Christian care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully warn, rebuke, and admonish one another as the case shall require. Could you benefit from that? As we walk by faith and not by sight, we walk together instead of alone. So when I've got a sin that's a blind spot to me, you can point it out. So that when I'm down and need a little encouragement, you can encourage me. And, but when I need tough love, you can give tough love. Help one another with love and tough love as needed. I mean, this is absolutely huge that we sojourn together on this life towards the heavenly city together, not alone. We link arm in arms and we go step by step. We help one another along the way. This is personal ministry to one another, and it's priceless, and it's found in the church. Another one is that we will participate in each other's joys and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. I'm so glad that Jesus is with us wherever we go, but I am also so glad that Jesus has given us one another because sometimes I want to share good news with someone and see them smile and be happy for me. doesn't mean that Jesus isn't enough. It means that Jesus has given us that. And sometimes when I'm real sad, I want a real hug from a real person. Priceless. Another is that we will earnestly endeavor to bring up our children and others who may be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know 
our first best hope as a church to continue is our own kids. And our kids' first best hope of salvation is that their parents teach and model the gospel every day and that they do it with the support of a local church. By our children's ministry, teachers and helpers, but also by adults who take the time to know children in the church by their names and to be good and kind and patient and gentle church family to them. This should be a safe and helpful and encouraging place for kids. They should like it here. Even if we make them sit down and study the Bible, they should like it here. And one day, they'll realize that it's the Bible that does that to people. They've got a great shot at coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just one more. That we will not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, nor omit the great duty of prayer both for ourselves and for others. Who can place a value on the prayers of the saints? God delights in the prayers of his children, and he's a good father who gives good gifts to his children who ask. I can't imagine what my life would be like if the people who I know are regularly praying for me were to stop praying for me. I have no idea what that life would be like, and I don't want to find out. Our shortcoming is that we never really put the premium on prayer that we should. It still sort of seems like, I'm not sure if this is doing anything to us. And it is. And more of it would do more for Christ's church and for God's kingdom. What a benefit for members. The prayers of you right here in this room for one another. Those are the benefits of covenant, of promised membership with one another. <clears throat> the other thing I want to talk about is just, it's just the benefit of being together. I think this is relevant to us, especially after the government shutdowns in, in 2020. Uh, and the, the first part of that covenantal verse was that we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It seems particularly poignant to us. It comes from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day, is drawing near. We should cherish now more than ever the benefits of being present with one another, especially as the people of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book, it's called Life Together, and he said, the physical presence of other believers is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Simple sentence. I think it's profound because I think it's true. The physical presence of other believers is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. I know that better than before just by being around one another fortifies us and it encourages our souls. We're spiritually connected to one another, perhaps in ways that we, we're not even conscious to detect. But there's something about coming together that's a huge benefit for the people of God whose spirit indwells them, especially at the Lord's table. Another benefit we receive is the benefit of inconvenience. Did I hear that right? Yes. 
the benefit of inconvenience. It's inconvenient to get up early on Sunday and get ready and get the kids ready and drive to church and maybe even give somebody else a ride along the way. And and if it's raining or if it's winter, it's doubly inconvenient. Yes, it's gloriously inconvenient to gather together to worship on the Lord's day. It takes effort. And effort builds resolve. And resolve proves that you're doing the right thing. Resolve becomes visible. Parents, your resolve becomes visible to your children. Brothers and sisters, your resolve to worship God becomes visible to your brothers and sisters. Your children see that we're people who stop everything else and give glory to God on the Lord's day. We're we're not at the beginning and we're not at the end of covering the earth with the Lord's glory, but we're somewhere in the middle. We're somewhere in the middle of covering the whole earth with his glory. And we need to be resolved to do that. And the fellowship. The fellowship. I love it when we all voluntarily hang around after the worship service and just talk and enjoy one another's company. 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour. Some people leave and go to lunch together. Life is so fast and busy and hectic But here on Sunday morning, life and interactions and expectations all slow down to regular speed and almost without recognizing why, time together with one another without any other agenda is just delightful. It's just delightful. Together, within reach of each other, we pray and sing and read and listen. We think and meditate and wrestle and consider. We eat the bread and we drink the cup and we commune together with Christ and we do spiritual good to one another. There's so much more that we could, don't have enough time to take to, talk about the benefits of being God's called out people gathered in the local church and so I would say it's too much for us to forsake. The benefits are too great to even consider not gathering. Membership in the local church is meaningful to me. Membership in the local church is meaningful to you because our worship and witness, our walking in a worthy manner and our display of God's love is, uh, is building us up and strengthening us here amidst one another. We need and we benefit from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as local church membership has benefits, it also has requirements. We're committed to loving God and to loving one another. Yep, the local church has to be committed to at least three things to even be considered a Christian church. These are, these are the remarks, or these are the marks, I should say, of a true church. First is the right preaching of the Word of God. Second is the right administration of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And third is the right practice of discipline. Let me expand those just, just quickly. The right preaching of the Word of God. Romans chapter 10 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word 
of Christ. The members of the local church must be committed to the Word of God. The right administration of the ordinances. The church confirms that its members are Christians. It doesn't make them Christians, but it confirms. Yes, these people are Christians by the administration of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are not individual practices. These are not individual rites. They're corporately administered practices by the church. The church confers baptism on the person making a credible profession of faith. Baptism being the entry or the initiatory ordinance to the church. And the church serves the Lord's Supper to those who have been baptized and are continuing in the faith. The Lord's Supper being the continuing ordinance. We're going to talk more about those both next Sunday. But then there's the right practice of discipline, which really should mean two things. There's formative discipline and there's corrective discipline. We prefer formative discipline, and we do it all the time. If needed, then we perform corrective discipline. Formative discipline is teaching and instructing and equipping. When Jesus says, go and teach them to obey all the things that I've commanded you to do, we probably refer to this as discipling or discipleship. And corrective discipline, which may just be a, it may be a word of rebuke to a brother, or uh, it could, uh, if someone can persist, then it could end in removal from the church, as we looked at earlier. Corrective discipline. And this may be what we think of often when we hear the word church discipline. But all of the right practice of discipline must be practiced with gospel clarity and directed to the good of souls. And these are the marks of a of a true church. And yet the hallmark commitment of members in a local church is to be actively loving God and loving one another. That's, that's the great command. And then Jesus brings it down to one. There's one that if it's in place, proves that the other is already in place. And so Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we have these commitments to make. And then there are commitments to make to a particular local church, like our local church. Membership at Christ Fellowship Church requires these four commitments. You're required to attend Lord's Day worship gatherings. Here's, here's the one real big thing we do. We gather and we worship together. You're required to participate in the ministries of the church by attending members' meetings and by finding ways to serve. You're required to give financially. As the Bible says, to give sacrificially, systematically, and with joy in support of the gospel ministry. And you're required to submit to the leadership of the church, which is helpfully stated in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. This is a great verse. It helps us so much to understand the local church. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, the church. What a helpful verse. Membership in the local church is meaningful when I order my life around the church. And you should. 
you should order your life around the church. But what you should find is that in ordering your life around the church, you're probably in your head doing a little bit of a cost-benefit analysis. That's the, what is the cost? What's the benefit? You'll find, though, that the cost-benefit analysis of joining the church is really the cost-benefit analysis of being an obedient Christian. Shall I be an obedient Christian or not? Every obedient Christian should be a member of a local church. Because church membership is the natural progression of an active gospel. People hear the word, they believe, and they are called out from sinful mankind into the church, into this gathering of believers that then proceed to live out their lives worshiping God and proclaiming the gospel in the process of God covering the earth with his glory. That's what's meaningful. That's why we make commitments. Lastly, I want to share three things about Christ's passion in and for and through the local church. This is kind of hints at his design and the value of it and, and its meaning. Let me begin just with the fact that Jesus loves his bride and that his bride is the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present her, the church, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Does Jesus love the church? He does. The first thing to get right then is your relationship with God. Christ has already committed himself to restore your broken relationship with the living God. He gave his body on the cross as payment for your sin. He poured out his righteous blood on the cross to cleanse you of your unrighteousness. Have you submitted yourself to him? Have you submitted yourself to him? This is God's meaningful design. For sinners to be reconciled to him through faith in his son. You must leave your old life behind. You must, when you think about it, your old life wasn't worth much anyway. Not really. And you must submit yourself to Christ. Choose him because he loves you. Secondly, the church is the body of Christ here on earth. We've mentioned that a little bit. In, in, in the same passage in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 29, Paul writes, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul also describes the church as the body of Christ. He does it by saying, Now, you are the body of Christ. Pretty clear, isn't it? You are the body of Christ, and individually you're members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and so on and so on. Where did Paul get the idea of the church being the body of Christ on earth? Is he just a really good teacher and it's a, and it's a pretty cool metaphor? 
Well, let's think back to Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road. In fact, let's turn there to Acts, Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. Remember, remember Saul was a persecutor of the church. And we find him in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest in Jerusalem and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's the church, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus says to Paul, who is persecuting his church, Why do you persecute me? That's how closely Jesus identifies with his church. That's why Paul teaches we're united to Christ by faith. That when, he's, when we're persecuted, he's persecuted. Where did Paul get the idea that the church is the body of Christ? The metaphor that he uses to describe the church? He was told the idea with his first encounter of Jesus Christ in the bright light on the road to Damascus. It knocked him on his can. And Jesus said, I'm the church. You're persecuting me. That's where he got the idea. Because it's a real idea. Because it's God's idea. And at least to Jesus, it's not just a metaphor. Oneness with Christ himself makes church membership meaningful. Necessary. One last thing. In Revelation chapter 22 and verses 16 and 17, this is both a verse that's present, at least as John is writing it, and for the church age, and, and it's also forward-looking. It's the close of John's revelation. And verse 16 reads, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus sent this angel to give John this revelation so that we would have this word. Think about this. If you're doubting that the local church matters, Jesus wrote this letter to seven particular, specifically named local churches. And the members therein. And he seals his message with this declaration that he is the promised root of Jesse and that he is the king in the line of David and that he is the bright and morning star who will arise and shine the glory of God all over the earth as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 60. Jesus is the bright morning star who will shine the glory of God all over the earth. Jesus is ultimately the one who will fill the earth with God's glory. And who gets to tell the world about him? Who gets the meaningful task of telling people to come to him for life? 
Look at verse 17. The Spirit and the bride, they say, come. And let the one who hears also say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, let him come. The Holy Spirit of God and the bride of Christ, his church on earth today. We say, come. You see, because this life will never satisfy, so we tell the thirsty, come to Christ. Come to his church. To those who desire life, we say, come to Christ and have it by faith. So membership in the local church is meaningful because we love what Christ loves. And we give our lives for what Christ gave his life for, the gospel. And we do it so that the earth, the whole earth, one day will be filled with his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ whom you've given to us that by faith we find ourselves in him and that when he is revealed at the end of the age we will be revealed with him in glory. Your glory that will cover the earth. Father, we simply pray, let your will be done. In Christ's name, amen.